welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. Those of you who have been paying attention to, honestly, either the basic income space or the presidential election space have probably heard about Andrew Yang. We've actually had Andrew on this program in the past. He is running for president as a Democrat on a platform that heavily features universal basic income as his signature policy. He calls it the Freedom Dividend. Now, Andrew has made some pretty big headlines in recent weeks because he has managed to qualify for not just one, but two of the Democratic presidential debates by getting a sufficient number of people to donate to his campaign. So he's actually going to be on the stage on the various news networks talking about his run for president and heavily focusing on universal basic income there. So I got to talk to him about his run while he was on the road to an event in New Hampshire. So here's my conversation with Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for the great work you do. So you are, you know, you, you are running for president. This is not at all a symbolic run. You are hanging out in Iowa, New Hampshire, and doing all the things that presidential candidates do. So just on a, a general level, what's it like running for president and what surprised you so far? Yeah, I'm in a car right now in New Hampshire. We have an event in Plymouth, New Hampshire tonight. This is my 11th trip to New Hampshire, I believe. Uh, since I declared a year ago, I just took advantage of the time to spend time uh, in the early states and uh, introduce myself. You know, the biggest surprise has been the heightened political culture in both Iowa and New Hampshire, where they're legitimately accustomed to choosing the next president. You know, like I, I, I spoke in New Hampshire at a House party, and then the person afterwards told me Barack Obama stood exactly where you stood where, uh, eight years ago or 10 years ago. Uh, and so just knowing that they, they literally are comparing you to presidential candidates they saw from 10, 20 years ago in some cases. Uh, and I guess if you reflect on it, that is the way it would work. Uh, but when you're in the same environments in that way, you realize the political culture in the early states is uh, very distinct. Yeah. Yeah, that's really fascinating. It's not something I, I think about day to day that I'd get get that much of a say in the, in the early stages. So what part of the the UBI message, the basic income idea, are you finding resonates in places like Iowa and New Hampshire? And is it resonating? I mean, a lot of it is that if you describe the financial struggles and ups and downs that people are going through, I mean, many people relate to them in their own lives or the lives of their neighbors or family. Uh, and so I try and keep it grounded and talk about what universal basic income would actually mean to them and their family. You know, like take it from the abstract to the real as fast as possible. Yeah. And are there parts of it and maybe sort of implied in that answer there are? And I've had so many conversations about basic income and I find, you know, sometimes it really connects and sometimes I kind of veer off in a direction that is not resonating with people. Have you kind of learned through experience to stay away from certain angles or aspects of it? Yeah, I've certainly heard consistent objections uh, um, that I feel like I've been successful in addressing, probably quite similar to the ones that you get. Um, but people are increasingly open to it and excited about it because when I talk about the changes in the economy, many of them nod and say, yeah, my mall is closing or yeah, my uncle is a truck driver. And, uh, we, you know, we've been talking about that. So like, it, it feels like we're making a lot of progress. Yeah. And I think... The automation angle, which I've heard you bring up a lot in other media appearances, it's one that connects, you know, across country, across the country, across partisan lines, across generational lines. I think people really see this and feel this coming. 
at the same time, you know, there's this danger that if your whole case is automation, you um, you start to solve for automation and you you get responses like, well, you know, we've dealt with this before. The whole agriculture industry went through this, blah, blah, blah. And you get into more of a kind of technical conversation, I guess. Do you think it's possible to overplay the automation angle? You know, I mean, I can just speak for myself. Uh, I'm terrified of the automation angle. My, You know, like uh, if you just reflect on for a moment what it could mean. 30% of malls closing in the next four years, and that's virtually guaranteed. Uh, the eventual displacement of hundreds of thousands of truck drivers. There is no policy response that actually makes sense except for trying to freeze time, which also does not make sense. So I just speak honestly about what I think and feel. Um, I, I think I can very appropriately convey some of the things I see coming, um, you know, and, and just like people argue it from their own experience, and this happens to be what. I think is the most pressing uh, angle. I mean, if I thought everything was going to be like it is now, I mean, there's still many, many great reasons to adopt universal basic income, uh, you know, primarily that it would improve tens of millions of people's lives and health and mental health and nutrition and everything else. Uh, but, you know, I'm concerned about our society continuing to disintegrate uh, beneath our feet. Uh, to me, Donald Trump's election is the third inning of this wave that we're in. Uh, and if we don't get our acts together, then the fourth, fifth, sixth innings are going to be much, much darker. And do people, do you get the sense that people see that coming? Or are, are we more like, or do we not realize that we're in the third inning of something? Well, most people don't think about it until I tell them, uh, you know, because they don't sit there thinking about like, oh, yeah, like, you know, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, it's like, if you say fourth industrial revolution, like most people don't know what you're talking about. So, you know, that's one reason why I feel like my campaign can make a positive impact. And yeah, along those lines, you are basically assured a spot in the upcoming Democratic debates. And there's going to be a lot of candidates who probably won't even fit all on one night. And as a population, our attention span is, is not always the best. So let's say you were able to communicate one message generally to the Democratic electorate. You can basically lodge a sentence in everyone's brains. What's that message? It would be that we have to solve the problems that got Donald Trump elected. And to me, that problem is that we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa. Mm -hmm. And so what is the, the democratic response to that? Um, right now, it seems to be to blame the voters. <laughs> you know, it, it strikes me as like not, a, not the most empathetic or effective response. Uh, and so that's the sentence I would lodge in everyone's heads. It's like, what is the actual response? Um, because there are serious problems that are just growing uh, that got Donald Trump elected, and it's up to the Democratic Party to address them. I guess along those lines, there are a lot of cash-based programs right now being proposed in Congress um, that aren't you know anywhere near a, a full UBI, but you see things like expanding the earned income tax credit, uh, carbon dividend, child allowance, baby bonds, things like that. And let's say you are elected president and you have a Congress that's saying, look, we're not ready for full basic income, but you can pick and choose among programs like this or maybe something, you know, doesn't have to be one of those. How do you play that hand? Well, I, I would say, look, let's try a full UBI in a particular place uh, and see what happens. We need data. Like, I mean, I would understand it if people were like, hey, it's, it's not wise to implement it nationwide all at once. Um, and so I, I would fight for 
pilots and various representative communities, but make them really robust. Like none of this nonsense that passes off as trials right now. Like I would say the entire state of Rhode Island, two years, you know, and then we check back in two years and see how, how, how things are going. Um, I mean, if you were to do that, it would be so interesting because then everyone in the country would be like, why Rhode Island? Why not us? <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, why Rhode Island? I'm not, I mean, I'm just using it as an example. I'm not, um, you know, though I do like it Rhode makes Island. some sense, right? It's small. It's, um, you know, it's got an urban area in Providence. It's got a university. It's, um, I'm not sure what else it has, but. It, it actually has uh, some interesting demographic um, groups as well. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I wouldn't just say Rhode Island. I would say, look, we need we need a mid-sized city. We need a rural community. We need, um, like, a large... But, like, I, I would go big, though, and sustained. Um, because, you know, it's like you get better data uh, if it's real. Um, and, and not just these, like, little cash grants to groups of people. And then you follow up with them and hope miracles happen. Uh, like, I, I find that stuff, frankly... You know, it, it may not help us succeed because people are looking to poke holes in things that aren't even actual UBI, um, you know, in, in their implementation. So a lot of people come at the basic income discussion from a racial justice angle, because if poverty is scourged generally on America, it's doubly so for communities of color. Where do you think racial justice fits within the basic income discussion? Well, I, I'm really invigorated by the fact that historically marginalized communities would it would benefit more because you know a thousand dollars a month goes further in a context where you have lower access to wealth and education and opportunities uh it's also true for women who do the vast majority of the unrecognized uncompensated work in our families and communities so i love that aspect of of the freedom Dev dividend which is what i call my universal basic income proposal that it helps those who've been historically marginalized more. Yeah, and is that uh, is that part of the message playing in Iowa and New Hampshire, or is it, it really more just like economic insecurity, automation, those things? Oh, it's very much part of the message. I mean, I say all the time that if the Democratic Party is going to be about female empowerment, that $1,000 a month would be a better way to have millions of American women improve their situations. Uh, out of exploitative and abusive jobs and relationships. So I talk about it all the time. And as long as we're talking about female empowerment, do you think there should be at least one woman on the, the Democratic ticket? Yeah, that'd be my strong preference. Might as well. Well, those are the questions I had for you. Is there anything else you would like to add? I would like to say that uh, universal basic incomes come, I mean, it's been around for a long time. And I meet people all the time who've been studying it and enthused about it for decades. And I have a, I have a you know feeling that many other people listening to this may resemble that. So hopefully you see the historic opportunity we have where a presidential candidate who has fully based his platform on universal basic income just made the Democratic primary debate stage twice because I'm going to make it in June and July. And so we have to, like I was talking about earlier, we have to get this out of the abstract and into the real as fast as possible. We have to show our fellow citizens that we can do this uh, immediately. And so what I'd ask anyone listening to this please do go to yang2020.com and just donate $5, $1. It doesn't matter because we just need like a numbers of donors. We're trying to get 200,000 donors by the time I'm on the debate stage in June. And then we can demonstrate momentum and take this all the way to Iowa, New Hampshire, and beyond in 2020. That was Owen speaking with Andrew Yang on the Basic Income Podcast. So I was really struck by what a true believer Andrew clearly is about 
the threats that he sees automation posing. That this is not, this isn't some concocted thing, this isn't an excuse for UBI. Like, he clearly is extremely alarmed at what's coming and, and the fact that there doesn't seem to be enough of a response out there yet. Yeah, I mean, you could see it in how he explains Trump's victory that this was not about immigration. It wasn't directly even to him about loss of status, though you could easily tie that in. It was about millions of jobs in the Midwest being lost to automation. And you, you could see how this galvanized him to run for president because of the effect it had on our political system, according to his theory of the case. And I think he makes a fairly compelling case there. Yeah, and, and I do think that, I mean, we should, whether or not you're sure that automation is going to decimate jobs, it seems pretty clear that there's there are unknowns here, and so ev even if your operating theory is that oh like we'll create new jobs here, like the fact that we are in in many ways in, in different territory than we have been in the past is reason to be concerned here, and and the fact that yeah that it really doesn't seem like much of the mainstream political establishment is seriously engaging on this, I, I mean, yeah, that's, this needs to be more of a conversation. And so it, it seems really important that, that he is pushing that. We've talked a lot on this podcast about how it's not just about automation. There's so much more to basic income, and it's possible to overplay automation. And I asked him about that. And to, to him, you can't really overplay automation, I think in large part because it gets name-checked by other candidates, by other politicians, and, you know, the changing workforce, they sort of hit that button and then move on because they want to talk about their other policies. But like climate change, it's one of these things where, for whatever reason, it's not getting as much play as it should. And it is having this drastic effect that is probably being put too far in our minds in the future, where I, you know, I think there's a pretty good case that it's happening right now. Something else that stood out for me in the discussion was when you asked him about what happens if, if he's elected and says, OK, let's do a freedom dividend. And Congress is like, eh. Uh -huh. <laughs> As they probably we're, would we're be. Not, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, we're not sold on this, but like maybe some other stuff. And then uh, his proposal to do do a much larger experiment. I, I think that's actually very, very interesting. And I think it's something we probably should be talking a lot more about that I, I actually do think we potentially can learn a lot from the various pilots that are going on right now. Um, it's all going to be incomplete pictures uh, because of, of limitations, either on who's getting it, on how long they're getting it, et cetera. But, but I think there's lessons to be learned. That said, if we could actually do a federally funded pilot, that really allows us to go much, much bigger than, than these private pilots that are happening right now. And uh, we could actually talk about doing something analogous to what's going on in Kenya that GiveDirectly is doing, where it's not just a randomized trial amongst people. You're actually taking different regions, towns, cities, or parts of cities, and giving people everyone there a basic income for some number of years and then comparing at the, the regional level what differences are happening. Because I do think, uh, no question that there are social effects that come with a universal basic income. It's not just about the individual, it's about what is a community where everyone gets to support. How does that change the way people think and act? And so if we could actually do some pilots here and really understand what that looks like in the United States context, I think we would learn so much from that. Yeah, it's funny. I really hadn't. I, I get so excited when we have a, a new trial. You know, another like thousand people that are getting a basic income spread across a state or whatever. 
and yet to hear him just kind of brush those off, that was, that was interesting just to think about the scale he's thinking on, because yeah, if you could give Rhode Island or Nebraska or whatever a basic income, that would just be a much bigger, more interesting, more expansive thing than you know, a, a thousand people in one of those states. It was also interesting how he he threw out Rhode Island just as, you know, the first state he thought of when clearly he's he's thought about this. And Rhode Island does make a lot of sense because it's small and it's got an urban area. I don't know, but we, we talked about it a little bit. Um, but yeah, no, I, I like that idea a lot. And it's something, you know, it's one more thing we can advocate for is to, you know, pick a state or pick, pick your state um, to do it. So one other thing I wanted to note here is, I mean, it is so impressive that Andrew has managed to get the level of traction that he has here, that he's going to be in the debates. And it, it really feels like the campaign has reached the next level. And so that's inspiring, but it also means suddenly there's going to be a lot more scrutiny um, over the campaign, over the policies being proposed. And I think that because of that, we're at a point now where the details of the policy are starting to matter a lot more, that we can't just hand wave around like, oh, basic income and some, some generalities about how it's going to be funded and without actually starting to go a level deeper and think about, okay, beyond just $1,000 a month, what are we actually talking about here? Like, how, how are these dynamics going to play out? And I, I think that from that perspective, um, the policy that Andrew's been talking about, uh, which is $1,000 a month to U.S. citizens that are 18 or older, um, and being paid for by replacing existing social programs and by a value-added tax. There's actually, if you're coming at this from a more progressive, equity-driven lens, there, there are some points of concern here. As we've talked about in the past when we had Alma's Zalecki on, if your basic income program doesn't include children, you actually end up in a situation where you aren't fully eliminating poverty because there are lots of cases out there where you have families with low or no income and potentially a, a high number of children. And the cost of living in that situation is, is quite a bit higher than, than just the poverty level would be for an individual. And so being able to afford all your expenses from adult-only basic income starts to become much more difficult. Uh, another is, as again, as we talked about in the past, that if you are funding basic income through replacing programs, then you end up in a situation where some people will get less than they get right now because the way that we do our targeting is it's highly imperfect, but it does mean that people who are in more dire situations may be getting more than the equivalent of $1,000 a month. And so they end up with a choice of either keeping the paternalistic, probably pretty shitty programs that they have currently, um, they give them a bit more support or something less that doesn't have strings attached but, but may not actually be enough to, to cover all their needs. Yeah, I, I would say that where this gets problematic is in paying for basic income, which he proposes mostly through a value-added tax, which would, have, which would generally make things a little bit more expensive. Um, and so let's say you're keeping your existing benefits, then things are getting a little bit more expensive then things are a little bit worse off for you. And you're already one of these people who is being targeted by our existing social safety net as someone who's particularly needy. You know, that's, that's not great. And there are tweaks, which may, maybe you can get into a little bit, that would 
fix or at least help that issue, but it's an issue. Yeah, and I think that's, since not everyone may know the details of, of how a value-added tax works, but, but basically you are you're taxing companies at every stage of when they purchase things, so they pay a, a certain tax on top of whatever, whatever the cost of what they're purchasing is, and then ultimately that falls on the consumer, that when you buy something, you also pay that additional cost, and then that offsets what the company's been paying up to that point. So effectively, it ends up looking a lot like a sales tax, which is uh, which tends to be regressive because lower income folks spend as consumers a higher percentage of their income, and so it tends to hit them harder. Now you can change that if you include certain exemptions on the value of the tax. So let's say you said we're going to charge this on every transaction except for the purchase of, of basic goods, so your rent, your food, clothing, stuff like that. If you exempted those, suddenly value-added tax becomes a progressive tax, and so you're not actually putting the burden on low-income folks as much. And so I think potentially that's a, a pretty simple change that would that would shift this so that we're, we're not we're not funding it on the backs of, of lower-income folks. And you can throw in that he also proposes a carbon dividend, which is essentially a carbon tax that would add to the basic income, and that could have some regressive effects on the um, on the taxation end of it. And so, you know, one more area, I 100% support the carbon dividend idea, but yeah, we're throwing in that the taxes can be regressive and that's why it's important you have a robust dividend to counteract that. The last point, and, and this is admittedly a tricky one, is the fact that his proposal is you would only be giving the freedom dividend to citizens. So no other non-citizen residents would qualify in, in the current proposal. And again, I'd say this is tricky because anytime we're dealing with immigration, who do you support and who you don't, those are hard questions to answer. But I think in this case, it's certainly excluding long-term legal residents, it means that you are not, you're not actually going to be eliminating poverty because there are certainly plenty of families out there who may have been here for years or even decades who don't have citizenship status. And in those cases, you are, you're giving $1,000 a month to everyone else, and so effectively you're, you're lifting the floor except for a few segments of it. And so that, that, I feel like there's real risk that you end up exacerbating some, some pretty extreme classism. And I, I think where I look for potential models of how this could go wrong is the Middle East, where a lot of countries there provide extremely generous benefits to citizens and next to nothing at all to non-citizens. And you, you really have an extremely tiered society. Granted, those places have often have very high percentage of the population as, as non-citizen residents. And so I think it's, it's more visibly extreme. But I, I do worry that if you are leaving off a good chunk of folks who are living here from this policy, that, that we start to move towards something that might look like that. Yeah, and that came up in our, our Iran episode. And I think this is one of these flashpoints that is going to get bigger and bigger as we get closer to potentially enacting a basic income in a state or the entire country. You know, who gets it? You know, it, it, do you have to be a citizen? Is, is five years of residency the right amount? Like, where's that line? And citizenship is a very easy line to draw, whereas anywhere else it's going to be a little bit fuzzy. But 
I think something like three to five years feels about right to me in terms of your residency in this country. Then you start to get it. Maybe it even uh, comes in in stages. You know, you get you know a quarter and two years and half and four years, whatever, whatever. Um, and I think this is an area where you can see Yang thinking about Midwestern man who voted for Obama twice and then switched to Trump because the economy seemed to no longer be for them. And it's it got very easy to demonize immigrants. At least, you know, Trump certainly managed to um, capitalize on that. And it's another case where if you take all of his policies all together and say this is the new United States, he does have a pathway to citizenship for undocumented immigrants. And so you could say, okay, there, there's a, a way in for them, even though it takes a long time. It's at least he's considering them, but the idea that you would pass a full basic income and that, and Medicare for all, and an early childhood, you know, early childhood education for all, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I feel like it's an easier policy. Like you, you probably get more of the country on board with this idea just by saying citizens, but I think. In terms of the the principle and doing the most good, that's not where to draw the line. And I mean, I think it would be easy to if if you just listen to the conversation that we've just had, your takeaway could easily be we're saying UBI is bad, yeah. which is obviously not the case <laughs> if you listen to anything else we've talked about. And I do think I, I mean all these things we said, there's some pretty straightforward fixes like include either a child's tax credit or or a partial basic income to children as part of the program. Uh, don't think about when you say you're replacing existing programs, either don't or say like, oh, like here's these certain programs that are actually like clearly filling this particular need beyond just what a basic income floor provides and, and those would be kept in place. Uh, have, yeah, as you said, like extend it to long-term residents and like have some amount of time uh, and amending the VAT so that you're not putting yeah. it on the backs of poor people. Like VAT being the value added tax. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like those are all like just adjustments you could do and, and suddenly what we'd be talking about is actually something that wouldn't be leaving anyone worse off than they are today. But I, I think these are things that up till now it's it's hasn't really been a problem to say like, oh, we'll figure out more of the details later. But I think Going on to the debate stage, there's going to be some hard questions here, and and if this policy hasn't really been rigorously adjusted and thought through, like there's a potential that that things could not go well. That'll do it for this episode of the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you to our producer Eric Davidson. Please rate us and review us on the podcast service of your choice, and please tell your friends to bring more people into this growing conversation. See you next week. Mm-hmm.